0: Me, if you will, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 9. 1 Samuel, chapter 9, where we're continuing our study in that book. Two weeks ago, Dr. York looked at chapter 8, and we're picking up where he left off as the nation of Israel prepares to appoint a king appointed by God. We're going to look at chapters nine and ten, but we're going to start by reading chapter nine, which is lengthy in and of itself, and then reading uh, most of chapter ten as we go through the rest of the sermon. So listen to God's word as I read. First Samuel chapter nine. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bicorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to present to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin." And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer, go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you, and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite? "'From the least of the tribes of Israel? "'And is not my clan the humblest "'of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? "'Why then have you spoken to me in this way?' "'Then Samuel took Saul and his young man "'and brought them into the hall "'and gave them a place at the head "'of those who had been invited, "'who were about thirty persons. "'And Samuel said to the cook, "'Bring the portion I gave you, "'of which I said to you, put it aside.' "'So the cook took up the leg,' and what was on it, and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you, until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Father, we ask that you would give us insight help by your holy spirit to understand your word rightly and to be changed by it through jesus christ amen <clears throat> in these chapters before us this evening we see the lord at work to raise up a king for his people israel we have already seen last time in chapter 8 that this request for a king, from a human perspective, rose up from a sinful and idolatrous desire of the people of Israel to be like the nations surrounding them. But at the same time, we find that God had purposes to establish a kingship in Israel. And as we see, as history unfolds, as salvation history unfolds, It's from the line of David that this king is going to come, purposes of God that would eventually be fulfilled perfectly in the true king, the perfect king, Jesus Christ. Now in these chapters before us, we see God at work to accomplish this purpose to begin the monarchy with Saul as king for the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines, And we want to look at how God works in chapters 9 and 10 under these three points. First, God at work in secret. Second, God equipping his servant. And then finally, God's call to trust and obey. So first of all, we want to consider God at work in secret. And we see this in both chapters 9 and 10, but especially I want to emphasize it for us in chapter 9. One of the foremost elements of these chapters is that God's work and God's purposes are concealed. God is at work in secret preparing Saul to be king. The Lord is at work for the the deliverance of his people from oppression, but it is not immediately seen. And especially in chapter 9, we see the Lord at work to accomplish his purposes through seemingly mundane and very ordinary circumstances. You begin reading this chapter and you think, huh, it's about donkeys that are lost. Now, to a farmer in that day and age, it would be like the farmer's pickup truck had disappeared, something like that. It was an important part of of his business but the narrator is showing us that it is much it is about much more god is working behind the scenes raising up a king for his people in answer to their cry we are introduced to saul in verses 1 and 2 that he's a man from benjamin we read about his ancestors we read that his father is a man of wealth and we also read that He is a young man. One commentator says we aren't to take that and press that to mean he's a youth. It may mean in the more the sense that he is a robust and fully grown man. Actually, as we read throughout the chapters, we see that Saul already has a fully grown male son, Jonathan, at this point. And he's probably around 40 years old at this point. He is, though we notice here, that he's recorded as being a handsome man and he's tall. From a human perspective, an ideal king, right? Someone that you'd want running on your presidential ticket. And he and his servant, this young man who he picks to go with him, probably a lot younger than he is, begin this multi-day search for donkeys that are lost, and we trace them through these various towns. Some of these names aren't even known nowadays, so they're not sure exactly the route that, Paul, that Saul and his servant took. But finally, at the end of the chapter, they end up at the town of the prophet Samuel, who, in chapter 10, we'll see, anoints Saul to be king. But already... In chapter 9, Saul's deficiencies begin to show a bit. To begin with, in the introduction, the characteristics which are ascribed to him are more characteristics that we'll see when David is anointed king and we're told that the Lord looks on the heart. There is no statement at this point about Saul's spiritual condition as Scripture sometimes would do. For example, we're not Told something like the phrase, the Lord was with him. And as Saul and his servant carry out their search, if anything, it's the servant, by way of contrast to Saul, who seems to exhibit wisdom and resourcefulness. It's almost as if Saul, this leader to be, is prodded into action by his servant's initiative. In verses 5 and 6, Saul is about to turn back. He doesn't want his father to worry about them, but in verse 6, the servant says and describes that there's a man of God in the city up ahead. It's the servant who knows about the prophet. And in verses 7 and 8, when Saul considers the servant's advice, he says, well, what do we have to give him? It's the servant who comes up with the coin in those days, it was typical that you would give something to the seer or the pro- prophet if you were asking him for guidance. But the point of the search for the donkeys is actually not a mundane. It is, all, it is not a mundane thing. It is all under the providential guidance of God In the verses 15 through 17, we get the flashback to the day before and the narration slows down and describes what the Lord has told the prophet Samuel is going to happen. The day before, the Lord had revealed to him, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now listen to the language here. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of Exodus chapters 2 and 3 where the cry of the nation in bondage in Egypt arises before God and he hears their cry? The language is very similar. And then when Samuel Finally sees Saul, the Lord speaks to him right then. Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, probably referring to that idea of restraining them as opposed to what we see in the book of judges, which has been happening right up to this point. Samuel is the last judge of Israel in that book we see in judges twenty one twenty five that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. The king would restrain them from doing what was right in their own eyes, at least ideally, a good king would do that. And so we see in this flashback God's purposes, his secret purposes revealed in what he is doing. And in chapter 10, Saul will be anointed king, but it will be in secret. And when he arrives home, he tells his uncle that the the donkeys uh, that he was told that they are already back home. But he, Saul decides to say nothing about being anointed king. And so God at work in secret, God at work in the mundane events of life. We think of Proverbs sixteen nine: the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We might think of Proverbs 20:24. 20, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? It all seems so casual, so ordinary, but planned by God. And the question that might arise in our minds, does God's providence only operate in the affairs of major figures like kings in salvation history? Or does his providence extend to the details of each of our lives? And we think of Matthew ten, twenty-nine to 31, where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And Jesus goes on to say, do not fear, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. Certainly, Scripture says, it is not only in the, in the events surrounding the lives of kings or major figures in history or presidents that God is sovereign and providentially at work. No, he is at work in every event, every little thing in life. But like 1 Samuel chapter 9, God may not let you see the secret purposes of what he is doing in our lives. As one commentator states, you may see traces of what he has been doing much later as you look back, but in the present, you may be just as much in the dark as Saul was. Isn't that often true of our lives? God at work, in secret, and often in this life, we don't even partly understand what God is doing. And we see here in God's secret work that even though Israel has rejected God as their true king, that has not prevented God's ongoing mercy to them and his providence at work for their good. God sees Israel idolatry in their cry for a king, chapter 8. It's repeated here a number of times in chapter 9 and 10 as well. But God also hears and answers their cry for relief in their distress. These foolish and stubborn people do not stop being objects of God's compassion and providential mercy on their behalf. God at work in secret. But secondly, we see God equipping his servant. And I want to go on and read the first half of chapter 10. Follow along with me if you would. We have Samuel, the prophet, with Saul. And at the end of chapter 9, he's dropped back a little bit. In the custom of the day, Samuel was leaving the city a little bit of distance with him to see him on his way. And we see them hesitating and dropping back a bit. So the servant's going on. So there's this secret meeting between them that no one sees. And we pick up the the account in chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his, Saul's, head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zezah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied, With the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when they saw they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom which, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. God equipping his servant. God equips and assures his people of his guidance, his power, his presence. Here we see that God graciously gives Saul various signs, really remarkable signs that are perfectly fulfilled that day, that serve to assure Saul that God has appointed him. Saul is anointed with the fragrant oil. I can't help but wonder what the servant would have thought because there would have been oil dripping from Saul's head and probably had a fragrance to it as well. He probably had some idea of what Happened, And he is given this guidance about what will happen. And in one particular place, the bread that is offered him, of which he receives these two loaves, probably these are offerings that are being taken up to be offered to God. And, and he is being given what would be called the wave offering of this bread. And then we see this remarkable description of him being the Holy Spirit rushing upon him in some way. And Saul prophesies in some way. And so this saying begins because this was Saul's hometown and it wasn't known that he ever did these kinds of things or wasn't among the young prophets in the area. He's given the empowering of the Spirit for his role as king. And throughout this whole description, we should especially note an additional part of the equipping of Saul that Saul is given the word of God through the prophet Samuel. In fact, we begin to see, and this even goes back to verse 8 of our text, that Saul seems to be reluctant to obey Samuel's word. In verse 6, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him. And in verse 7, it says... Samuel says to him, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. Notice, this is when he's at Gibeah, and the author mentioned that there's a Philistine garrison there. His role as king is to relieve the oppression, and there's a Philistine garrison in his hometown. Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then he's told, Then go down before me, to Gilgal, and he's given instructions about that. This doesn't happen at this point. In fact, it doesn't happen until chapter 13, and even then, Saul doesn't carry it out in a proper way. He disobeys the Lord. It comes across that Saul is a very reluctant, anointed king. And when verse 9 says, God gave him another heart, speaking of the work of the Spirit, that is probably describing something that falls short of regeneration in light of all that's to follow in the book about Saul. But the point is this, God equips Saul even though he is a hesitant and an unlikely and actually a very weak king and turns out to be disobedient to God. The application to us about God's equipping of his servants is that our God often defies human expectations and gives the most likely, unlikely people all that they need to serve him effectively. It's repeated here that Saul is from the least likely of the tribes. It's in chapter 9, it's in chapter 10. The tribe of Benjamin had earlier in the book of Judges been decimated by the civil war. Their brothers had almost wiped them out. Saul was an unlikely king. But God often defies our expectations in whom he raises up to serve him. And isn't that true for each one of us? Isn't that true for you and for me, for all of God's people? We certainly see it in the biblical characters that have been so greatly used by God. We think of Abraham going to a far land at God's call and for decades wondering when God would fulfill the promise of a son. And so at one point, taking matters into his own hands, trying to produce an heir in his own way. We see it with Joseph later, sold into slavery by his brothers and, and then in Egypt, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and enduring prison for a time. How hard that must have been. And, and even uh, being forgotten by the chief cupbearer when he had interpreted his dream for him. Or think of Moses fleeing Egypt at age 40 and spending the next 40 years as a shepherd out in the desert somewhere, and yet God raised him up to use him in setting his people free from Egypt. Or think of someone like Esther, in the book of Esther, taken into the harem of really a cruel and ungodly king, but choosing to stand with the people of God in the circumstances in which God had placed her. Or John the Baptist, as we looked at a few weeks ago in the morning, who who was a mighty prophet and yet imprisoned and wondering what the Messiah was going to do and dying there, being put to death by Herod. Or we could talk about Peter or Saul become Paul in the New Testament, one who had persecuted the Church of God, God's unlikely servants who are equipped by God, by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. In all of these lives, the sovereign and secret work of God, not as as any of these biblical characters would have expected or been able to plot out in advance, yet equipped for the service of God by God's word, by God's spirit, by the people of God surrounding them and the community of God. What an encouraging truth for you and for me. Rabbi Zacharias tells the story of how God worked in his life to prepare and call and equip him for service. Many of you have heard Rabbi Zacharias speak on Christian radio or maybe you've read one of his books at age 73. He is still speaking all over the world and even in countries closed to the gospel. A powerful defender of the faith and so skilled at answering the questions of the skeptics. In his autobiography, Rabbi Zacharias talks about his youth, and he says that he was the least likely to ever have such a role. If his parents were to pick among the five children they had, he would have been the last choice of someone who would have succeeded in life in any way. He recounts how he was never a good student. He says that he never even knew how to study. He never got good grades. All he loved was sports. He loved cricket and soccer especially. And he so deeply felt the disapproval of his father. In fact, his father told him that he was a failure. And Ravi always got tense when his father came home, knowing that he was displeasing his father. His other four Siblings were doing well in school and in other aspects of life, but not him. And so he came to such a low point of despair and hopelessness in his teenage years that he locked himself into the bathroom and tried to take his life. But God preserved him. Not the kind of beginning to the life that you might think when you hear him preach and speak. And when Rabbi woke up in the hospital a few days later... He learned that he had received a visit from a Youth for Christ worker. This man had come to visit the room where he was in and he had given Ravi's mother a Bible with John 14 19 marked and said please read that verse to Ravi when he wakes up. And that verse says Jesus said because I live you also shall live. And that verse was burned into Ravi's consciousness And he was given by God a new hope to live, and he began to grow in Christ. He had recently professed faith in Christ. Then one day at a Youth for Christ preaching event, his best friend was unable to preach. He was the one that everyone knew was the one who was going to be a preacher. And so what happened is the Youth for Christ director called on Ravi to take his place, and he said, me? He would be given a topic and 30 minutes to prepare And then he would preach a 20-minute sermon. This is the kind of competition they had in India in those days in Youth for Christ. And so he stood before the panel of judges and they had him pick a topic out of a hat and he picked the personality Elijah. And he stood before them and he said, I don't even know who Elijah is. And they said, well, we'll give you one more pick. Pick out of the topic of the hat that has biblical themes. And he picked the love of God in Jesus Christ and he said I will do that I will preach on that theme and he did and he won the competition or at least he tied for first and so it began a remarkable journey of almost 50 years now being used by God in the conversion of tens of thousands and when you read his story you say an unlikely servant yet called and equipped by God clearly it is the work of God. Well, finally, in our text, we see number three, God's God's call to trust and obey. We look at the final part of chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So they're meeting in mitzvah, And this is what happens. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribes of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold He has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God has touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Interesting, isn't it? A conclusion. Now Saul is not only anointed, but he is publicly acclaimed king. The people would have understood the use of lots, but they would have been puzzled by Saul's behavior. Saul hides among the baggage. Saul, who was called by God and equipped. By God, But as we will see as 1 Samuel unfolds more and more, Saul was a reluctant servant of God. And the great contrast in 1 Samuel will come out, the difference between Saul and David. Yes, David sinned as well. He was not the perfect king, but he was the standard of a good king. Saul is hiding. And then Saul is silent. He doesn't give a speech after being acclaimed king. There's no statement of a plan of action. He goes home with any mention of doing anything. He eventually will act. It is as as though God will force it upon him. But the whole picture portrays Saul as a man who is reluctant to comply with God's will for his life. He never seems to fully grasp what God requires of him. We wonder if Saul is really listening to To what Samuel says about what God requires. Samuel speaks in verse 25 about about the rights and duties of kingship. He, He wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. We assume that that was close to the ark somewhere that he wrote this up. It was clearly something that was required by God. What does it take to be the true king of Israel? That's one of the themes, one of the questions of First and Second Samuel. And Saul's qualities matched what the people thought they wanted in a king. But what an inadequate view. It wasn't enough to be tall and handsome. He was lacking the spiritual qualifications. And so throughout his reign, we are going to see Saul willfully violating God's word and God's will and doing things His own way. Saul was satisfied with a nominal allegiance to God. That means a ho hum allegiance to God. I'll do what God wills when it pleases me, but only then. He failed to understand the spiritual demands placed upon him in light of the kingship of Israel. He was not an adequate king. David fell short as well. All the kings of Israel and Judah fell short in some way. Yes, there were good kings and there were bad kings, but only Jesus fully meddled the demands of the office of king of God's people. The king was called to the rights and duties of kingship, It regulated by God how the king was to conduct himself. He is under the rule of God. John Knox asserted this idea again during the Reformation that royalty is subject to divine law. But so in the Christian life. True freedom is through genuinely submitting our lives to God's word, to God's law. True freedom comes by being saved by the work and the power of Christ and his cross, being saved from the the curse and the penalty of the law. But then Christ graciously calls us to a new obedience to his law, to his perfect and glorious. But now an obedience out of love and trust in Christ as we see the beauty of Christ. Let me read a concluding paragraph from the last chapter of Ravi Zacharias's book, the testimony that he gives. He says, One day I was at the bedside of a friend who was a Muslim convert to Jesus Christ. He was in the hospital to have a leg amputated. Some years later, he would pay with his life for his commitment to Christ. But before I left his hospital bed that day, I prayed with him. With tears of joy, he said one sentence that I will never forget. Brother Ravi The more I study other beliefs and religions, the more beautiful Jesus becomes to me. Ravi Zacharias goes on to say, he is right. Even in ministry, the same applies. Through all of the visitations of life, successes or failures, it is not how well you are known or not known. It is not how big your organization is or isn't. It is not even how many sermons one has preached or books one has written or millions of dollars that one has accumulated. It is how well do you know Jesus Christ? That's it. That is what shapes how you view everything else. Successes are hollow if you do not know the author of his life and his purpose. To me, with each passing year, Jesus has only become more Beautiful. You and I are saved by the great King of Kings, and we are called to trust and obey, to let Jesus be at the center of our vision. God gives us His promises in Christ, God gives us Himself in Christ. We may not be able to trace out what God is doing in our lives but we are called to trust that our God is at work for our good and our ultimate salvation to keep trusting and following Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the examples you set before us, for the narrative you give us, which makes your truth, as it were, live for us, which brings it home to us, in other people's lives as we see it acted out. And Lord, we pray that as we live before you this week, that Jesus Christ would be precious to us, that we would be enabled by your equipping power to walk with you through the ups and downs of our lives, through the circumstances that you secretly bring about in our lives that we cannot trace out. But Lord, help us to walk with you. We do it only through the strength that you give through Jesus Christ. Amen.